0: You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Carmelite Conversations with Mark Dennis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian voice in your home. It's nice to be back in the studio with you, Francis. I've been away for a little bit. Yes,
1: welcome back, Mark. <laughs> I'm glad to be here with you and I'm looking forward to t- today's uh, conversation that we're going to have. Mm.
0: Yes, today we're going to open a new topic, and actually we're going to begin with an author that we have not talked about, uh, at least in the context of a program. We've certainly made reference to him in the past, and I believe, in fact, we probably even made reference to this particular text that we're going to use for our conversation today. The author, not to keep secrets here, the author is Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the philosopher, the Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard. And the book that we're going to at least begin our conversation with, because the topic reflects the title, and that is Purity of Heart. Kierkegaard's subtitle for that is Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Uh, A great challenge laid out by this Danish philosopher, and we're going to use his text and that title specifically as the opening of our conversation. But uh, before we launch into that, I'd like us to uh, begin purifying our own hearts and turning our will to our Father in prayer. So, Francis, would you mind leading us in prayer?
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, This prayer is inspired by Mother Teresa of Calcutta, since she's going to be canonized very soon here and be St. Teresa of Calcutta. So let us get quiet, get recollected, put the worries of the world... Asunder, and let us think of the Lord and Our Lady, and let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O dear, Immaculate Heart of Mary, keep us in your most pure heart, so that we may love and please Jesus purely, through you, with you, and in you, now and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
0: Well, before we uh, have too many of our audience, Francis, uh, running into the next room because they don't want to deal with a a title that has heavy philosophical overtones, I should just caution. um, We're really just going to touch on this book, Uh, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. The title speaks for itself. In it, Kierkegaard goes through a very elaborate explanation of this idea of a Christian purifying their heart. Something far more challenging, I suspect, than many of us might originally or initially um, think of when we hear the phrase purity of heart. And he also talks at length about all those impediments to our efforts to purify our heart. And he deals with a title that we are, or a topic rather, we are going to discuss just briefly called double-mindedness. Uh, but what I want us to focus on for our conversation is this idea of the importance of purifying our heart and the singularity of focus of our will in order to do that, in fact, as a, cre- a, a, a prerequisite uh, in our Christian walk in order to um, move towards this purification of our heart, something we talk about a lot, Francis, in contemplative prayer and um, our ascetic practices and Uh, So forth. But here we're going to talk um, much more deliberately about exactly how we can predispose ourselves to this purification. But before we do that, because we're good Carmelites, we're going to start off with a scripture verse that reminds us of the importance of this idea of purification of the heart.
1: And of course, this comes from the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 verses 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yeah, we all want to do that, right? That's it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, know we, I think we all do. <laughs> we,
0: we not only want to see him, but of course we want to encounter him, maybe is the best way to phrase it in preparation for what I'm going to say. We want to encounter him in this life, don't we? Uh-huh. And and the truth of the matter is, and I, I want to offer this up front as well, and I know Francis would echo this, uh, what both Kierkegaard and our Carmelite Saints, who we'll discuss this, this uh, in this conversation as well, are challenging us to is something that, in all fairness, though everyone is called to this, very few people really want to take the steps necessary to bring about this experience of the living God while in this life, and it's just the the you know harsh reality of the world in which we live. And Kierkegaard is going to remind us why that is so challenging.
1: And I'm so thrilled we're going to have this conversation about him because I I learned a lot. I mean, he simplified. What was most essential in this? And, and we hear so much, uh, of the details about how to get there, but we don't see the main motivation. Of course it's God, but I, I think this philosopher has really done us a great, uh, a uh, deal of gratitude, a, a great uh, blessing uh, by uh, zeroing in on it to to help us simplify and, and make it um, more...
0: Approachable.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank
0: Understandable. you. Understandable. Well, I just want to offer up front, um, as a further incentive and motivation uh, to take this conversation, no pun intended, uh, to heart, uh, the Writings of St. Rabanus Maris, and I hope I'm saying that right. All of our Latin scholars will challenge me on that, I'm sure. But uh, he was actually featured in The Magnificat this last Friday, and I thought that was rather timely. He's also, Francis, the author—I did not know this until I read it—he's the author of— The
1: Vini Creator Spiritus, which, which is the famous Come Holy Spirit prayer that uh, we use as the sequence um, on Easter
0: and we also pray it in our Carmelite uh, Forum every month. Yes, we it do. It is it's opening a, prayer. So. It's
1: a beautiful prayer. Yeah, mm.
0: It comes in many versions. Uh, unfortunately, you'll find a number of uh, disparate versions on it. But uh, I particularly like the one that we pray in um, in our uh, community. But uh, here's what um, St. Rabanus had to say. Uh, about the absence of purity of heart, this idea of purity of heart, or rather the consequences of allowing ourselves to become distracted by the world and and what John of the Cross is later going to refer to as the appetites. We'll discuss that. But just we understand this concept of worldliness. Here's what he had to say and cautioned us with regard to that.
1: Those, he wrote, who are negligent in contemplation, deprive themselves of the vision of God's light. And those who let themselves be indiscreetly invaded by worries and allow their thoughts to be overwhelmed by the tumult of worldly things, condemn themselves to the absolute impossibility of penetrating the secrets of the invisible God.
0: Now, I was taken aback by that. I had already begun the preparation for the presentation, the conversation. You and I had conversed and agreed this was our topic. And I must uh, say that when I read that, I, it, it sort of jolted me. And I thought, wow, he's just putting it right out there. One, he's saying if we avoid contemplation, uh, don't expect to, you know, sort of be able to experience this vision of God's light. And furthermore, if we allow ourselves to become distracted by the world, not just its pleasures, but also its worries and anxieties, which is the other part of this, faith is a critical part of this, then again, he says, do not expect to be able to penetrate the secrets of the invisible God. So what are the worries and the things of the world have to do with this idea of purity of heart? Uh, to be fair, for many, this... Term purity of heart today means uh, things like keeping our mind and bodies pure. Uh, chaste is a word that would come to mind, consistent with our station in life. But traditionally, it would be thought of only in the context of things that we should avoid, the things that we should um, not involve ourselves with. But uh, fortunately, um, it is actually a far deeper a call and the gift that we receive is far greater than simple purity of heart or or uh, um, a chaste life Um, while these things are true this uh, purification of heart and mind uh, they don't go far enough when we speak of purity of heart in a spiritual context we mean far more than this elimination, as I said, of the impure. It actually has a much more proactive pursuit of the good. The one thing in all eternity that we know to be good, and that, of course, is God.
1: And that so, reminds me of, of Matthew, um, chapter 19, verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. And we know who he's referring to, God the Father. So we we see here that Jesus is making clear to us that there is only one who is truly good. And by consequence, if, if we're to pursue this good, we must not only pursue God with all of our heart, but we must also conform everything in our life to that pursuit. Now, that's where we need to zero in.
0: Let's see if we can understand a little bit better again this phrase purity of heart. So according to the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, in his book titled the same, Purity of Heart. Is to will one thing. Now, I mentioned this book and I encourage those of you who may have an interest. Uh, in it. It's not the most approachable, in other words, not the easiest. Kierkegaard is an intellectual and somewhat uh, challenging in his writing, but I really encourage those who have an interest in picking up this topic of conversation that Francis and I are engaging in today to, to get a copy of this book. It's not a particularly long book, just over a couple hundred pages. How'd
1: you discover it,
0: Mark? Oh, I've had it in my library for a long time. I was taken by the title. This was long after my uh, entry into Carmel, and um, Kierkegaard actually was uh, one of the favorite authors of John Paul II. Oh, I didn't um, know that. He's a well-known Christian philosopher, so um, I was particularly taken by his works, and I have read a number of his works, but I have to say this particular work is my favorite mm-hmm. of all of his writings, and uh, for many who are analysts of him, we'll mention one of them today, uh, this is his, uh, uh, their favorite work of his it's not considered his greatest work but nonetheless uh, for me in the context of our christian walk it is Uh, so this one thing kierkegaard is referring to is indeed the good or the good which he attributes as does jesus only to god so for kierkegaard the one thing can only be god and he is the only good
1: well you know mark some people are going to argue but you can't you pursue multiple things, you know? Um, so what what would Kierkegaard have to say about that?
0: Well, this is where he gets into the use of this term double-mindedness. In fact, we'll draw a quote from him. But Kierkegaard would say, actually, there are not two goods that we could pursue. So, Francis, you and I could sit and talk about the aspiration to be a concert pianist or to be a, a great sports figure or to be a great business person or even to be a great mother, right? We could talk about any one of those. Right. Kierkegaard would caution us, I don't think he'd be particularly harsh about it, but he'd caution, there's only one good, there's only the pursuit of one good thing, and everything else must be aligned to that. And this is what he says, actually, from the text, the person who wills one thing that is not the good, he does not truly will one thing. It is a delusion, an illusion, a deception, a self-deception, that he wills only one thing. For in his innermost being, he is, he is bound to be double-minded. Therefore, the apostle says, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So even Kierkegaard's drawing from scripture here. That is, he goes on, purify your hearts of double-mindedness. In other words, let your heart, in truth, will only one thing, for therein is the heart's purity. Now, this is a very challenging um, a statement that Kierkegaard is making. He's in effect saying, listen, if you think that you can pursue other good things and just sort of put them in a parallel with God or the pursuit of holiness, it's a delusion. You have deceived yourself. You are mistaken in believing that somehow we can combine uh, the um, the the aspiration for God, the only good, with the other good things in our life. Instead, his contention is we must, I'll use my own phrase here, subordinate those things to our pursuit of God. Now, where do I find that in scripture?
1: Well, Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, this is all about right relationship, that God is the ultimate end and that's the one good, and everything else is um, underneath that, subordinate to that. We see here the clear instruction from our Lord that we are to seek only after one thing. And when we do that, so many of the other things we may desire in life will be provided to us if it should be stated those things are in concert with God's perfect will for us. But it is enough to wrestle today with this idea, challenging as it is, that we must seek after only one thing in this life.
0: If we return to Kierkegaard's work for just a moment, he has a number of very profound things to tell us about this pursuit of God. And he begins by doing so right from the beginning of the first chapter. And I'm going to read. It's a rather lengthy quote. And I see, Francis, you're grabbing for water, so I'll steal this quote. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lengthy quote. I I, uh, Um, beg the indulgence of our reader. And again, the language is a little bit uh, challenging. It's not our language he was writing in the mid-1800s. But um, it is important, I think, to understand. He really sets the context for his his whole argument at the very beginning of the book. So let me begin. Father in heaven, what is a man without thee? What is all that he knows, vast accumulation though it be, but a chipped fragment if he does not know thee? What is all his striving? Could it even encompass a world, but a half-finished work, if he does not know Thee? Thee, the One, who art one thing and who art all. So may Thou give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing. To the heart, sincerity, to receive this understanding. To the will, purity, that wills only one thing. In prosperity may Thou grant perseverance to will one thing, Amid distractions, collectedness to will one thing, In suffering, patience to will one thing. O Thou that giveth both the beginning and the completion, May Thou early, at the dawn of the day, Give to the young man the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may Thou give to the old man a renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last, the last like the first, in possession of a life that has willed only one thing. Alas, but this has indeed not come to pass. Something has come in between. The separation of sin lies in between. Each day and day after day something is being placed in between. Delay blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So in this time of repentance may thou give the courage once again to will one thing. True it is that in an interruption of our ordinary tasks, we do lay down our work as though it were a day of rest. When the penitent, and it is only in a time of repentance that the heavy-laden worker may be quiet in the confession of sin, is alone before thee in self-accusation this indeed an interruption but it is an interruption that searches back into its very beginnings that it might bind up anew that which sin has separated that in its grief it might atone for lost time that in its anxiety it might bring to completion that which lies before it o thou that givest both the beginning and the completion Give thou victory in the day of need, so that what neither a man's burning wish nor his determined resolution may attain to may be granted unto him in the sorrowing of repentance to will only one thing.
1: That is such an intense prayer. I mean, <laughs> I mean when you go back and you, you study that, I mean, and you ponder it, you contemplate the words. It is such a deep prayer because he starts out, Father in heaven. And so this is his heart speaking and he writes it there for all of us to reap the benefits. And oh, of course,
0: my. this um, um poetic beginning you know there's a little bit of rhyme at the beginning so he sort of draws you into the language and then that refrain one thing yeah will one it just keeps coming back yes and he runs it across the whole spectrum of the human experience doesn't he from joy to sorrow to pursuit to ambition all the rest of it he says no will one thing regardless beginning late uh, beginning early and ending late You know, it's important to point out that Kierkegaard wrote this, what he called a discourse. It was intended to be delivered as a presentation, or at the very least, Kierkegaard suggested that his readers, as we just did, Mm Francis, should read it Mm -hmm. out loud.
1: Aren't we so blessed?
0: (laughs) So actually, you are receiving it in the way that Kierkegaard would have preferred that you be exposed to this. But it's also important to note uh, that the subtitle to this discourse reads this way. Spiritual Preparation for the Office of Confession. Yes. He wrote this as a treatise, if you will, in preparation for confession. In other words, those who um, uh, he intended, individuals who were preparing themselves to receive confession, reconciliation, or called back to repentance, uh, those who men, may have been away from the sacrament for some time.
1: Well, I, as you have shared with us, this entire work, <clears throat> this whole book um, that he wrote, is really an intellectual assault on what he refers to as the double-mindedness. So, if you're thinking about that um, concept as you go through that prayer, I mean, you're you're really um, struck by this to will only one thing. So, you know, this double-mindedness, this double-mindedness, is that propensity of the the heart of us, of us human beings, to being divided in our hearts, divided in our natures. But we know. Uh, somebody who has spoken about this kind of thing, uh, um, blessed. Well, now Saint Elizabeth of Soon the Trinity. To be. Soon to be. yes. <laughs> um Yes. Yes. Right. 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 When I, uh, <laughs> I've already got her canonized. We don't. did that a long had her time her canonized ago.
0: two years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, October fifteenth or sixteenth. Right in there. Sixteenth. The sixteenth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Are you going to go? By the way.
0: Ugh. Spiritually, right? From your lips to God he is, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, soon to be, <laughs> referred to this as the scattering of our forces. And in her book, um, there's a collected works at ICS Publications of of her works. In in the one called Heaven and Faith, um, she says this, If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. What is this single eye of which the master speaks, but this simplicity of intention, which gathers into unity all the scattered forces of the soul and unites the spirit itself to God? I think she summed that up beautifully. Oh, I think
0: she did. (laughs) She really is summing up Kierkegaard's entire book. Now, again, I I, want to emphasize and caution our listeners here. Uh, If you're sitting at home and you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, I got that. Seek God first. Uh, Yeah, I get that. But this is really a a far greater challenge. What what Kierkegaard is saying is this double-mindedness has to do even with the admirable pursuits in our life. And let me give you, before we take our break, Um, An explanation of what he does later describe if we're pursuing something in our life and we say as we should in all cases this presumes by the way that we're actively seeking God's will that we are praying that we are uh, for Catholics availing ourselves of the sacraments and so forth. And we say, God, I want to do this, you know, because it's your will, whether it's, as I said before, athletic pursuits, musical pursuits, political, uh, business, what have you. Um,
1: relational. <laughs> or, or
0: relational, exactly. But we find ourselves in the midst of a storm or a, a setback or a disappointment.
1: Many of those how come do along. How we
0: respond to it? <laughs> right. That's the double-mindedness. And and Kierkegaard will reveal later, for those who are interested in pursuing the book, how that will manifest itself as this double-mindedness. If we were, in fact, um, uh, single-minded, as Elizabeth said, the single light, we would not have half of the frustrations, anxieties, fears, doubts, and trials that we experience in our life. It is this very introduction of double-mindedness, our will mixed with God's will. What does he say? Purity of heart is to will one thing. If we could get to where we only Pursued God's will. You know, we've done some reading. Francis, you're leading the course on um, Saint Miriam, Jesus, Saint Mary Jesus, crucified, or, or Miriam, right? A, a wonderful personality who was uh, recently uh, canonized last year, um, and somebody I encourage to read. I'm, I'm bringing this up only because I'm reading her now. She, in her life, really lives this out. Yes, this single-mindedness. Did. I love the. The sentence, by the way, that uh, the evil one uh, attributed to her, he said, "If I had known how much trouble she was going to cause me, I would have (laughs) smothered smothered her in her cradle." (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I want Satan to be able to say that about me someday. But this is what we're talking about: this single-mindedness, this single uh, focus, focus the single eye
1: that, yeah, mm -hmm.
0: a beautiful way of understanding what our Christian walk Mm. uh, calls us to, and and again, a profound and more challenging way i think than most people give it credit for well we're going to take a break here um at at, uh, the bottom of the hour and um, we'll come back and pick up on this idea and we will get to the introduction of the carmelite saints and what they have to say about this single-mindedness a reminder that you're listening to carmelite conversations on radio maria a christian voice in your home we'll be right back
2: For a reason I've been longing For a purpose Losing all my meaning Run out of excuses Lord, it's hard to know you don't always see a plan Holiness is calling me So take me as I am Cause you are my everything You are the song I sing I'll do anything
0: Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. When I return to our program, Carmelite conversations with Mark Dennis and Francis Harry.
1: Well, welcome back to Carmelite conversations. Mark and I are having a talk about purity of heart uh, with some major insights on the book by um, the philosopher Kierkegaard. Um, the book is called "Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing." So we're going to go on with the the conversation here. Um, God is a simple unity. That's what he's getting at, and and we want to have that single eye, single f- focus, like we had just mentioned before the break about as Saint opposed Elizabeth to what?
2: Trinity.
1: Yeah. As, as opposed to the double mindedness. Thank you, Mark. So from some analysis on Kierkegaard, there was a paper that D. Anthony Storm wrote, and. And we pulled this quote because um, it kind of summarizes it beautifully. Um, D. Anthony Storm says, God is singular of nature and is not divided or contrary in any way. By this, I do not refer to Unitarian versus Trinitarian theology, but simply that Kierkegaard sees God as a unity of thought, will, and being. We say that again. God Kierkegaard sees God as a unity of thought, will, and being. The nature of God is changeless. Kierkegaard addresses man at variance within himself, war, within, right, the internal battle. He despairs at either willing to be himself, defiance, or at not willing to be himself, which is denial. In the book Purity of Heart, man is either of singular intent Willing one thing or is double minded. The book of the work explores this double mindedness. The move from double mindedness to purity of heart is a volatile act, act of the will. Our refusal to will the one thing is due to our grounding in the temporal. We'll say that again. Our refusal to will the one thing is due to our grounding in the temporal. Kierkegaard encourages his reader to seek the internal.
0: Yeah, now before we turn specifically to the teachings of the Carmelite saints uh, on this very topic, we want to take a couple of other observations from Kierkegaard's work that we think will be helpful for uh, further setting the context for our conversation uh, first is this line that he uses in the introduction of the work, which he actually titles, Man and the Eternal.
1: And that's the introduction
0: title. Right. Yeah. Right. He writes, only the eternal is always appropriate and always present, always true. Only the eternal applies to each human being whatever his age may be. Now think about that. It's a profound sentence. He's saying only the eternal is the only thing that's always present and always true. Our past is past. Our future is somewhere in front of us. But the eternal, the context of our eternal reality Uh, our relationship to God is always true. It's always present. It's always appropriate. And it is the only thing that applies to each individual at the same time. In other words, my individual experience is separate from your own, Francis. And if we evaluate sort of um, in a double-minded fashion our life in the context of our individual experience, we get lost. What Kierkegaard is saying is you must see things in the context of the eternal. At all times, he says, see things in the context of the eternal. Again, because Kierkegaard's work is motivation and preparation for confession, reconciliation, he speaks about this idea of the moment of remorse or repentance that every human soul will experience eventually. What is that remorse? It is the realization that we have not operated in the context of the eternal. We've not looked at our life from the perspective that we are eternal beings, that we are spiritual beings, that we are created and called to a loving God with whom we will spend eternity. Now for Kierkegaard, every deviation from that is this idea of remorse and repentance and as we become more and more aware of our own existence in the context of the eternal we deepen unfortunately but fortunately in the end we deepen our remorse And fortunately, we deepen our repentance.
1: It's a great grace to have remorse and repentance. I mean, to have the remorse is the opportunity to have repentance, to say, I am sorry. And that's all. You you know, once you say, I'm sorry, then the Lord turns and floods you with his grace.
0: The work can begin, exactly.
1: And of course, that reminds me from scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God.
0: Yeah, it's important, even though we're using a Danish philosopher <clears throat> uh, and a work, a secular work, uh, for the most part, um, we always want to make sure that we can tie our references back to Scripture. We know this verse very well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Kierkegaard's saying the same thing. We've all lived without this focus on the eternal. It's led us to remorse for much of our lives in fairness, and. Uh, thankfully, uh, to repentance. And then Kierkegaard goes on and uses this really interesting analogy. He says that this moment of repentance, this realization, this awakening, if you will, can be referred to as the 11th hour, the hour when we will have to face the reality of our situation of having been guilty of sin. He referred to that earlier. For some it may come at a young age, and for others perhaps not until late in life, but regardless of when it happens, regardless of when we have this awakening, for Kierkegaard it is the eleventh hour, that moment, because at that moment we will become profoundly aware that we have very little time to repent and make amends for our lives. It doesn't matter whether it happens at age 15 or age 65. In other words, in a very real sense, Our entire life is the 11th hour. Now, I don't mean by that that the last hour of our life, everything is lived. I mean our entire life from birth to death is really lived in the 11th hour. And what Kierkegaard is saying is when we come to that realization, there is an eternal reality for us. And this very limited time uh, that we will spend in the temporal, 70, 75, 80, 100 for some, but in fairness, in the context of eternal, very limited, that entire span is the 11th
1: hour. Can you imagine what it would be like if everybody realized all at once they're in the 11th hour?
0: <laughs> and you have very little time. That's the thing. You know, uh, Christ speaks uh, to that in the gospel. And of course, many people have misinterpreted that, that he was referring to that generation to which he was speaking. Oh, we're in the last hour. No, he's saying that to all of us 2,000 wow. years later. Yes, we're in the last hour. You're only going to live, dear soul, 50, 60, 70 years, some not that long. But regardless, it's limited time for us to um, repent and experience the remorse that would be necessary to begin to purify our hearts. And again, this isn't just a moving away from a sinful nature. As we began the conversation, it's moving towards something very proactive, this purification uh, that, that uh, Kierkegaard spoke about early on. I do recommend that people try to get a copy of the book. It's well worth reading. He goes on to discuss, as I said earlier, a lot of the impediments that we humans face in this effort of trying to purify our hearts. Uh, But before we do leave Kierkegaard, I promise we will, (laughs) Uh, I just want to cover one more thing uh, that accompanies accompanies us on this journey of the Eleventh Hour.
1: And this is his quote. A providence watches over each man's wandering through life. It it provides him with two guides. One calls him forward. The other calls him back. They are, however, not in opposition to each other, these two guides, nor do they leave the wanderer standing there in doubt, confused by the double call. Rather, the two are in eternal understanding with each other. For the one beckons forward to the good, The other calls man back from evil. Nor are they blind guides. Just for that reason, there are two of them. For in order to make the journey secure, they must look both forward and backward. Alas, there was perhaps many a one who went astray through not understanding how to continue a good beginning. For his course was along a false way, and he pressed on so continuously that remorse could not call him back onto the old way. There was perhaps someone who went astray because, in the exhaustion of repentance, he could go no further, so that the guide could not help him to find the way forward. When a long procession is about to move, a call is heard first from the one who is furthest forward, but he waits until the last has answered. Of these two, the call of remorse is perhaps the best. For the eager traveler who travels lightly along the way does not, in this fashion, learn to know it as well as a wayfarer with a heavy burden. The one who merely strives to get on does not learn to know the way as well as the remorseful man. The eager traveler hurries forward to the new, to the novel, and indeed away from experience. But the remorseful one who comes from behind laboriously gathers up experience.
0: Yeah, so this reminds me, by the way, of the, uh, I think he was a Roman god, Janus, who had two faces, one in the front and one in the back. And of course, um, he's watching where he's going, but at the same time, um, uh, mindful of where he's uh, been and what he's left behind. So this idea that we are constantly... Moving towards something which Kierkegaard encourages, and in fact it says it's it 's great that we are moving towards it, but actually it 's the remorse, the moving away from something that is perhaps the greater catalyst, the greater motivator uh, to our efforts to purify our hearts because we see both the time wasted and the time ill spent, uh, and that serves as a great um, uh, motivation to Uh, call us to God and to call us to move forward. It also helps us uh, through some of those very difficult times that inevitably will come as a result of our efforts to purify our hearts and move away from the temporal nature of our existence. Again, um, he focuses on this 11th hour on keeping in mind the eternal and in doing so um, we are uh, encouraged and in fact motivated and given the strength Uh, to move to purify our hearts as much as possible.
1: Well, now let's go to some of our Carmelite saints and see what they have to say on this topic of purity of heart, more specifically, putting God as the first priority in our lives. From St. John of the Cross, ascent to Mount Carmel, we see Kierkegaard's idea of unity and the unfortunate consequences of the double-mindedness that man so often falls victim to.
0: Well, from Book 1, Chapter 6, Paragraph 6, John writes, the soul is wearied and fatigued by its desires. The desires disturb it, allowing it not to rest in any place or in anything whatsoever. The desires and indulgence in them all cause it greater emptiness and hunger. Now, Francis, we should emphasize here uh, what John was referring to was not uh, simply inordinate desires like a thirst for alcoholism or, um, you know, people's um, indulgence in food or Or seeking um,
1: power or
0: or gambling or what have you. He's not really even referring to those in in large measure. What he's talking about are the things in life that are in and of themselves, not bad. They're admirable. They may be perfectly appropriate uh, pursuits for uh, we human beings, but If we get the order wrong, you mentioned it earlier, if we reverse the order of priority and we place these things in our hearts, good analogy, um, and in such a way that they make less room for God, then we've entered what Kierkegaard says is this double-mindedness. We are distracted. We are, um, you know, sort of torn away from the act of purification. Again, I want to go back to something I said at the beginning of our conversation. This is a tall order. This is not something that, quite frankly, most human beings are really interested in, in getting themselves involved in. It's important to know the end. What's the end? Well, it's where Francis and I began our conversation. The vision of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And our saint told us, Saint Rabenus told us, we will come to know the secrets of the invisible God if we pursue this purity of heart. So the motivation is there. But even with that, most of us will tend towards the temporal and those things which might otherwise distract and this us. And is,
1: this is so important, what John says, the desires and indulgence in them all causes it greater emptiness and hunger. I mean, you can think of a lot of wealthy people who have just about everything they ever want, can go anywhere they want, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they're not happy. You know, that's a perfect example of this, very big spiritual disease of trying to use material things to fill the hole in your heart that can only be filled by the love of God.
0: And in fact, what they do, Francis, as we well know, is they create and deepen that hunger and you keep yeah. trying to fill it with that thing. You know, you think about the person with an addiction. Uh, let's not, you know, attribute it to anything in particular. There are a number of them, but you you develop an addiction and rather than acknowledging that that addiction has led you to despair. People become so blinded that they continue to indulge and, in fact, increase their indulgence of the addiction as a means of relieving themselves from the very despair that it caused in the first place. The only thing that we can pursue that we'll never get enough of, that we will never be filled up with, that we will never, um, you know, find despair in, is the love of God. And, of course, manifested in ourselves through the love of neighbor. That's the only thing there's no... Uh, sort of um, high water mark on, uh, we we can continue to deepen that experience.
1: Well, John the Cross in the Ascend of Mount Carmel, chapter 8, goes on to say, book 1, the soul that is clouded by the desires is darkened, as you referred to, Mark, darkened in the understanding and allows neither the sun of natural reason nor that of the supernatural wisdom of God to shine upon it and illuminate it clearly at the same time when the soul is darkened in the understanding it is benumbed also in the will and the memory becomes dull and disordered in its dire operation the intellect cannot get the illumination of god's wisdom the will cannot get the love of god and the memory cannot get god's image Darkness and coarseness will always be with a soul until its appetites are extinguished. The appetites are like a cataract on the eye or specks of dust in it. Until removed, they obstruct vision. The affections and appetites deprive them of a treasure of divine light. Any appetite, even one that is but slightly imperfect, stains and defiles the soul.
0: Well, he's reiterated uh, Kierkegaard, Uh, brilliantly here in in these uh, seven um, uh, brief sentences from, as you said, book one, chapter eight. Um, John goes on, though, a bit more bluntly in chapter 10 to say this, the unmortified appetites result in killing a man in his relationship with God. Yes, the walking dead. (laughs) Yeah, You know, he's saying, look, it's not just that they'll distract you. It's not just that they'll potentially lead you astray. He's saying they will ultimately kill a man in his relationship with God. Now, at the same time, we should say we must have to bear in mind it's not just the appetites that can serve to make our hearts impure. It is also a lack of faith. It's worry, anxiety, fear, doubt in God's providence for us. It stems from this double-mindedness, but it's worse in the sense that we now have begun to lose faith in God. We've placed uh, our hope in things other than God, or we have failed to find faith in God's providence for us. John says it this way, distress and worry... Ordinarily makes things worse and even does harm to the soul itself. The endurance of all with equanimity—that means balance of, uh, of our mind and and um, our temper. Um, John says equanimity not only reaps many blessings, but also helps the soul to employ the proper remedy. So John is saying if we maintain our equanimity, which is based solely on faith. For John, faith is is the critical virtue. Um, we can not only re- maintain our balance, but we can discern how to apply the proper remedy.
1: Well, Scripture again provides us with the same counsel, and this is from Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8. I know this is one of our favorite passages. It says, Be anxious for nothing, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things.
0: Yeah, it's well worth reading Philippians 4, 6 through 8, which Francis just read for us, every single day. <laughs> every single day, read this uh, this uh, three verses from Philippians uh, chapter 4. Very important that we understand that God does not want us to be anxious, and it is, in fact, our um, uh, affinity, our our passion, our uh, sometimes addiction to the things of this world that cause us to lose our balance.
1: Now, Mark, as we gather this all up and summarize it, um, maybe you could uh, provide some of the more practical ideas and methods of prayer to help us all begin to experience this purification of our hearts. I know you've studied John of the Cross a lot, and so you can pull from him to help us out here.
0: Well, John will tell us first. Uh, no man of himself can succeed in voiding himself of all his desires in order to come to God. We cannot, nor are we expected to do this on our own. That should find We should find encouragement and consolation in that. No man can do this for himself. Instead, John gives us this counsel. You should strive in your prayer for a pure conscience, a will that is holy with God, and a mind truly set upon him. What does that mean? Everything, Lord, that you have brought into my life, I accept. I accept your will. I accept the circumstances, be they good or bad. As long as I'm in a continual state of prayer, this is something we can hold on to. In your prayer, John says, a will that is holy with God and a mind that is truly set upon him. The heart, he goes on, and the joy of will is withdrawn from all that is not God and concentrated on him alone. In this elevation of joy in him, God gives testimony of who he is. In a desert way, dry and pathless, I appeared before you to see your power and your glory. That's from Psalm 62, 3. John quotes it. He goes on, The soul is exalted in purest faith, which God then infuses and augments much more abundantly. As a result, the soul enjoys divine and lofty knowledge by means of the dark and naked habit of faith. And finally, from St. John of the Cross, Book 2, Chapter 1, all that is required for a complete pacification of the spiritual house is the negation through pure faith of all the spiritual faculties and gratifications and appetites, the very things that we've been talking about. Only God is enough. This achieved, John goes on, the soul will be joined with the Beloved in a union of simplicity and purity and love and likeness.
1: Well, finally, as we always do, we would like to invoke the assistance of our Blessed Mother. So here from the writings of soon-to-be St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, we find this quote. There is one who knew this gift of God, one who did not lose one particle of it, One who was so pure, so luminous, that she seemed to be the light itself. One whose life was so simple, so lost in God that there is hardly anything we can say about it. She was the faithful virgin who kept all these things in her heart. She remained so little, so recollected in God's presence, in the seclusion of the temple, that she drew down upon herself the delight of the Holy Trinity."
0: And that's from Heaven in Faith. It's actually the Tenth Day Reflection and the Collected Works of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, soon to be St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Yeah. And Yay. so it's interesting how our Carmelite saints are in such uh, unity with uh, this famous... Uh, philosopher. Well, and I and think the philosopher was in
1: unity with our saints because they <laughs> came before him.
0: <laughs> well, that's true. He probably read. Uh, certainly, he read scripture, and and uh, whether we read Carmelite saints and their writings, we don't know. But um, I just want to reiterate a couple of key points about our conversation this evening. This idea of purity of heart um, is not something intellectual. It's not something we have to be. Uh, you know, graduate students in order to discern. It is, as Kierkegaard says, to will one thing. And we know that one thing is the good, and that good, of course, is God. Scripture tells us that. To do that, though, to practice this purification of the heart, to will one thing, regardless of the circumstances of our life, we can only do it through grace, and grace acquired through prayer and the sacraments. And so the message is not new, it's not unique, uh, but it is challenging, and it is, I think, Insightful for us to understand that to purify our hearts, we must model the life of the Blessed Mother in a very powerful way. Rely on her, call on her for for her help and aid in this effort. Um, And if we do, if we are able to um, bring ourselves to that state of mind and heart, uh, we do open ourselves to the possibility of encountering God even in this life.
1: Mm, Beautifully put, Mark. I mean, (laughs) I'm just like (laughs) wowed right now. Thank you uh, for bringing all of this to our attention. It's a call for all of us. I have a closing prayer here. It's the act of consecration to the heart of Mary, and I think it summarizes beautifully what we've been talking about. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O most pure heart of Mary, full of goodness, show your love towards us. Let the flame of your heart, O Mary, descend on all people. We love you immensely. Impress on our hearts true love so that we may long for you. O Mary, gentle and humble of heart, remember us when we sin. You know that all people sin. Grant that through your most pure and motherly heart, we may be healed from every spiritual sickness. Grant that we may always experience the goodness of your motherly heart and that through the flame of your heart we may be converted. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, a reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.